And if I keep reinforcing the identity, hi, I'm Karen, I'm a sex addict, what do you think I'm going to be? And a lot of people are sober from the addictive behaviors. And I've seen this in a ton of different programs, but they have other addictions like you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Like there are, I don't know the percentage, I'm not going to guess, but I've dated a lot of, excuse me, men in Alcoholics Anonymous that were sex addicts, untreated undiagnosed, they would never, ever say they had a problem. And they traded one addiction for another. And a lot of times, I think sex addiction is a primary addiction for people. But it's so acceptable in the society for men to be sex addicts, especially with pornography, that they don't think it's a problem. And it produces such a high level of dopamine, and they are high. These men are stoned when they are using pornography. Absolutely high out of their minds. Welcome to The Wayfinder Show with Adam Lacey and Luis Hernandez, where guests discuss the why and how of making changes in their life that led them down a greater, more authentic path or allowed them to level up in some area of their life. Our goal is to dig deep and provide not only knowledge, but actionable advice to help you get from where you are to where you want to be. Come join us and find the way to your dream life. All right, welcome back to the Wayfinder Show. We got a really special guest today. Uh, but you know, before that, want to just uh, the disclaimer: we Adam is not here with me again today. Uh, lately, we've just had a lot of schedule conflicts with us being on different time zones and everything. So uh, we we you, you'll probably be hearing a lot more of us one on one with our guests this year, uh, and that's just the way it's going to be. But very oftentimes we'll we'll be on there together as well. But um, it, it's kind of nice because we get to really, you know, de- dive deep uh, with with our guests more, and not have to worry about, you know, who the other person, what the other person is, is thinking, or or anything like that. So we think this will also help our show as well. But we do miss working with each other. Um, I think we're a good team. So, anyways, without further ado, I want to welcome uh, our guest for today. Her name is Miss Karen Seltz, um, and uh, Miss Seltz does well. I'll let you her tell you a little bit more about her, uh, her, so I don't do any disjustice. So, Karen, welcome to the Wayfinder Show. Thank you so much, Louise. Well, I am so excited to be here, and I love any opportunity to share my story in a way that will inspire other people. Because Good. what I say is, you know, if I can be where I am now after all the crap that I've done in my lifetime. Pretty much anybody can. Yeah. Excellent. Well, then this is going to be fun because that's exactly what we like. We, we like to inspire others through the hardships we've overcome, right? So tell us, why don't we, we start, you know, start where you'd like. A, tell us a little bit about your origin story and, and, and let's walk through that. Absolutely. So now. Yeah. So I grew up, I was the youngest and the only girl, and I grew up in a rural area and a lot of times didn't have a lot of parental supervision and my older brothers 
picked on me, like physically and emotionally. So I grew up thinking that if I was called girly, that meant I was weak. There was something wrong with me. Hmm. And I grew up masking every single emotion, every single fear. Hmm. And nobody knew, you know, what would get to me because I never showed. So, for example, if I did, for example, show a fear of a snake. Now, I grew up in the middle of the country. My brothers would find a snake and chase me with it. So I learned, like, I'm not afraid of a snake. And inside, I'd be dying. I'd be like, oh, please don't touch me with it. Please, you know, but on the outside, I was a stone. And it's really interesting to this day, I do not cry from physical pain. It's just not wired that way. So I grew up, you know, negating my femininity, negating my emotions, thinking they were bad or wrong if I had them. So you can probably guess that I was not very expressive. I didn't know who I was. And it took some major crap to hit the fan before I was willing to even look at any of it. I ended mm. up numbing my emotions and I had a daughter. My second daughter was born. She was premature and she had, by the time she was one, she had 20 different medical specialists. Wow. Yeah. And it was a lot. And she was about to have a major surgery where they took half of her skull out of her head and reshaped it and put it back in. And I was freaking out, yeah, freaking out and, you know, pushing down all the stories that later came up. Like I thought it was all my fault that she was that way. I thought I did something wrong to cause it. And hmm. I had at the time a nanny. I worked a couple days a week and this nanny was really the only person I felt like was on my side. She was the only one that was on my team. My husband was drinking. He was numbing out, like running from his pain in that way. And this nanny quit with no explanation right before this major surgery. Hmm. And I lost it. Like the response was way bigger than what was called for in the situation. Like I couldn't move for like 11 days. I was just crying like in a ball. And I realized that I had all this childhood trauma all these abandonment issues that I had never dealt with. And I went for a massage, an innocent massage at a regular place that's a chain. And I realized that I was not only numbing my emotions, but I was numbing my physical impulses. So if I can be blunt, I wasn't having sex with my husband at the time. And I was just completely shut off to all my sexuality. Well, because I called last minute, I happened to get a male therapist. And as he's massaging me, like all this stuff came back up like, oh, my body's alive and I have desires. And oh, my gosh, this is what it's like to be touched. Hmm. And so I began a sexual relationship with this massage therapist. And yes, I was married. And then it's really, really fascinating. When I look back, it was connected to my survival. Because I had so much at home and I felt completely powerless over everything. You know, my I had this little tiny daughter who was three and a half pounds when she was born and she was having surgery and all these things. And she didn't eat and she had one kidney. I mean, it was just like one thing after another. And 
the only place I felt like I had control in my life, the only place I felt like I had any power was when it came to getting men that shouldn't want to have sex with me to have sex with me. Mm. And it became linked to my survival. Like if I don't do this, I'm going to commit suicide because I can't handle my life. And so it really spiraled out of control. Like I was married and instead of working, I would go out and find people to have sex with. And so my income went down and it just, it was a whole mess. And eventually, as you might imagine, I got an STD. And Hmm. so I'm like, well, I got to tell my my husband, you know, and of course that didn't go well. (laughs) And I started going to 12 step meetings, but I was still acting out. I still had no desire to quit. I was just trying to appease him. And I knew I belonged there. I knew I had a problem. I just wasn't ready to stop. And it really wasn't for many, many years. I kept going to meetings and I had no sobriety. I just, I didn't want it and I wasn't ready. And it wasn't for many years. I had been divorced. So I was only only stayed married to my ex-husband another year or so after that. And um, it wasn't for many years. I actually hired a coach and he said, if you want anything to be different in your life, you have to stop the addictive behavior. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I never thought of that. (laughs) It just seems so simple. And so I'm like, oh, okay, I'll stop. And so I actually got a sponsor and started working the steps and I got some sobriety under my belt. And it's really interesting. It wasn't until I did the trauma release work that I now do with my clients that my identity shifted. When I cleared the trauma that was causing me to act out, I went back to a 12-step meeting and I went to introduce myself. I said, hi, I'm Karen. I'm a, And I just stopped mid-sentence. And I'm like, huh, no, I'm not. I'm like, I'll never say that again. Like it just was gone. And I never went to another 12-step meeting again. And at that point, I was sober for three years from my addictive behaviors. And it's been five more since then. Nice. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. When you resolve the underlying trauma that is causing the addictive behaviors or whatever it is, the identity can shift. And that's exactly what happened for me. And since then, it's just been one adventure after another. It hasn't been like, oh, like a steady uphill, everything's perfect and peachy and rosy. But I've been able to deal. I've been able to be really super transparent with my emotions and my desires, my goals, my aspirations, and deal with my failures and disappointments. Wow. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, you know, I'm wondering, first of all, you, you mentioned you, when you stopped your addictive behaviors, you, you tr- clearly this was an addiction, just like a drug or any such thing, right? So were there other addictions that were mixed with it? Because oftentimes, you know, people who are doing drugs, you know, they'll mix other drugs or, or what have mm-hmm. you, other addictions. Were were there others? Or, or was it just... That's a, yeah, that's a really good question. I think we're all addicted to something. And 
for many people, it's emotional states. For some mm-hmm. people, it's like being a victim. And you know people like this, right? They're always, something always happens to them. So emotions are just as addictive as substances. And the, the deal with sex addiction is we have a pharmacy inside our heads and we can activate it by thought alone. So I could fantasize about something, whether it had happened in the past or was about to happen, or I was hoping it would happen. I could create the same high from fantasizing about something that I could from actually doing it. Hmm. So that was my addiction. That was it. Before that, I used to shop to numb out. And my finances ran low because <laughs> I was acting out and not working. So yeah. I'm like, well, okay, this is it. So no, I was all in on that one. And I'm allergic to alcohol. Like my body physically doesn't process it. So that was never an option for me to be addicted to. And I was never into drugs or anything. I just was, my drug of choice really was power. Mm. And that's what I got from acting out. So you you said something else that was really interesting to me. So you were... To overcome the addiction, you were going through this 12-step programs, right? And um, and then all of a sudden, it just clicked, and you stopped, and you didn't need it anymore, and you found a different way. And it sounds to me like you really just – there was an identity shift there. You said, hey, you were going to introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Karen. I'm a blank. And you know, then you caught yourself realizing, hey, I'm not blank anymore. You, you, you change your identity, essentially, right? You, you recognize yourself yeah. as somebody totally different. Is that right? Absolutely. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So I find that with that in mind, you know, there's a lot of, um, I I found that there's usually two types of people who quit some kind of addiction, right? Whatever it is. And there's the ones who go through the program, whether it's, you know, something anonymous or, or another way, um, or they they have that identity shift as well, and they just drop it. It just kind of happens, like out of nowhere. You know, I'm actually one of those. I I, I don't, you know, I, in the last couple of years, I've really given up drinking. I, I occasionally do have a beer, actually, um, but I just stopped drinking. It wasn't like I felt like I was an alcoholic. I still don't think I ever was, although now that I don't really drink, I I, I think, oh, man, I, I kind of drank a lot back then. <laughs> you know, or there was a stage in my life in my early 20s where I smoked and I stopped smoking all of a sudden. Right. And it was just and it just happened. It just clicked. But I never consciously made that change of like, I'm not a smoker. I'm quitting or I'm not a drinker. I'm quitting. I just it just just stopped, you know, and uh, I think. So really, all that to say that there's really three people and I started off by thinking, too, but like, I guess there's <laughs> the ones who go with help of the program. There's the ones who consciously make an identity shift. And there's the ones who just stop for no reason. I've met more people, especially men as we age, and I'm, I'm, I'm meeting and learning that it seems like a dropping alcohol in particular. At some point mm-hmm. around our age, they're just like, hey, I, I, it doesn't serve me anymore. I'm just done. Right? So yeah. can you how, – how does that happen? How do you determine it? And, and one more uh, piece to add to that. Can you – there's the other people who stay in AA for 30 plus years. Right. And, and they still seem to need it and they got to go and, and, but they haven't drank in all of that time. And, uh, so they clearly still see themselves as, you know, the addict, I guess, but now they're sober. Right. Um, yeah. What are, how are those differences, you know, how do they come about? 
What do you have to say about those? <laughs> yeah, it's really fascinating because <clears throat> I know a lot of people that have been in 12-step programs for a long time. Yeah. And that becomes their new identity. Yeah. And we were talking about identities. And in all of the anonymous programs, there is the, you will always be an addict. And I think, I, I disagree with that. I, why are you going if you're always going to be the same? I mean, not that you're not doing it, but to have the same identity, you are where your attention goes. You are where your energy goes. I mean, that. You create what you focus on. And if I keep reinforcing the identity, hi, I'm Karen, I'm a sex addict, what do you think I'm going to be? And a lot of people are sober from the addictive behaviors. And I've seen this in a ton of different programs, but they have other addictions like you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Like there are, I don't know the percentage, I'm not going to guess, but I've dated a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, men in Alcoholics Anonymous that were sex addicts, untreated undiagnosed, they would never, ever say they had a problem. And they traded one addiction for another. And a lot of times, I think sex addiction is a primary addiction for people. But it's so acceptable in the society for men to be sex addicts, especially sure. with pornography, that yeah. they don't think it's a problem. And it produces such a high level of dopamine. And they are high. These men are stoned when they are using pornography, absolutely high out of their minds, but they're not using a substance. They're creating it in their brains. So for me, I think to truly recover from an addiction is to deal with the trauma that caused it because there is underlying trauma to all addiction. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to do it. And when that trauma gets resolved, and there are lots of different ways to do it, then the desire to do the addictive behavior or ingest the substance just disappears on its own. And I can't explain it, <laughs> but you know, if you're no longer hungry, you're not going to eat unless there's something wrong with you, right? Unless there's something wired wrong. So for me, it's like, what do you want your identity to be? What do you want your life to be? Like, I didn't recover from an addiction so I could spend the rest of my life in a room listening to people's stories. And that's for me to decide. Other people like to be there. It reminds them, hopefully, of their progress. And But there's also this underlying fear that if I don't come here, I could be them again. I could be that newcomer. That could be me. I could go right back. So I call that like white knuckling. Like many people, no matter how much sobriety they have, are one trigger away from relapse. And I don't want to live that way. I'd rather deal with the underlying root cause. You know, if you went to a dentist and he said, oh, here's some pain medication, you know, just keep taking this for the rest of your life. You would not go to that dentist. You'd say, fix the freaking problem. Fix my tooth. I don't want to be in pain for the rest of my life. I don't want to keep taking Tylenol. I want the root of the problem solved. But we don't look at ourselves that way. Yeah. And so what are some of these traumas that could be underlying them that, that lead to it? Because oftentimes it – I don't know. I find – uh like in my case with drinking, what what was it that led me 
I, I don't feel like I was dealing with any trauma. I just, I feel like I, you know, decided to, to quit. Like I didn't, I don't always feel like I have, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. What are but common even you ones? Said, yeah. You said that you didn't, you didn't consider it an addiction. Mm-hmm. If it was an addiction. So, so here's the thing too, like the way things get wired into the brain is it doesn't even have to be big T. I don't really have big T trauma, but I had a ton of little T. And big T is like, you know, you were raped, you saw somebody get murdered, your house caught on fire, you almost died, you know, things like that. I had a lot of physical abuse that I didn't see coming. So mm. if I was sitting at the, the dinner table and eating my mashed potatoes with my hands, I would get a back slap across my mouth. Or, um, you know, one of mine that I, this is one of the first things that I cleared this event was I was three or four years old and we had a babysitter. My parents went bowling. I had two older brothers. The babysitter put me to bed because I was the youngest, supposedly. I sneaked out and I got caught and she said, go back to bed. So I went back to bed and I didn't come back out. Well, that night as I was sleeping, I was awoken by a spanking. So I was sleeping on my stomach and someone spanked me in my sleep. Mm. Now, what that created in me was the feeling like I am not safe anywhere. I don't matter. Nobody loves me. Nobody will protect me. I'm all alone. So I carried that everywhere. And throughout my entire life, mm. including my addiction. Now, I don't know what other people's traumas are or other people's difficulties. And over the course of time, you know, my brothers would hit me and not get in trouble. So I learned that if I want to survive, I better be a really good fighter and a really fast runner. I better learn how to disable somebody quick and get the hell out of there. So I learned. So I'm scrappy. Like, do not mess with me still. I will. <laughs> so, you know, there's all these things. And then we learn coping mechanisms, like how, what will make me feel better? And when we find something, we repeat it. We're like, well, this made me feel better once. Maybe it'll work again. And we develop these habit loops. And even when they don't work anymore, like alcohol, you still go to it because it worked for so long. And it's a habit or an addiction. Hmm. So how do you clear that trauma? Hmm. Any trauma? Let's just... yeah. Yeah, there's lots of different ways. One of the main modalities I use is called rapid resolution therapy. And you, there's a lot of education that goes on. Like I teach people how trauma is stored in the brain, how the subconscious mind works. You know, for example, the subconscious mind is always in the present tense. So when you get triggered, if you have a lot of events that you're constantly scanning the environment for anything at all that reminds you of a past traumatic or difficult event. So if you have a lot of them, you're going to find things a lot. So you're in an activated state, you know, fight, flight, freeze. The purpose of all of those is an action. So you're going to create these emotions, these chemicals get released into your body and their emotions whether you know it's fear or anger, frustration, that's calling for an action. The problem with the way the trauma stored in the brain is it's calling for an action on something that may have happened 30 years ago. 
and there's nothing you can do. So you get stuck in this loop where you're going around and around and around. And for most of us, we don't like it. So we're like, okay, what made us feel better? You know, okay, having sex made me forget about this and relax. Having a drink took the edge off, you know, whatever it was. So then we create these new loops. So teaching people that there's nothing happening right now. Right now, there is nothing you need to do. The event is over with. So I'm talking to the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. So there's a lot of interruption kind of, like I'll have people go back through an event and then come back to the present moment. And there are several different techniques, but it what it does is it teaches your brain, there's nothing happening right now. There's nothing for me to do. There's no need for this emotion. And then it restores it in a different place because trauma is stored in high definition in a very special place in the brain. So when you reclassify it in low definition, it's not a threat. It's the same as what'd you have for dinner last Wednesday night? And you're like, I don't know. You got to think about it. Unless you set the house on fire, you probably don't remember. So there's a lot to that. And then it also requires getting people into an alpha brainwave state, which is normal day to day. We are mostly in beta brainwave state. So it's pretty quick brainwaves. Like we're thinking, we're analyzing, and we're very, not always present, but we're present. We're thinking. When you start to slow down the brain waves, say you're watching television and you're just kind of chilling and you're not really thinking about anything else. You're just like mesmerized. You're in a semi-hypnotic state, which is how advertising works, by the way. <laughs> they get you when you're in that state. So when you're in that alpha brainwave state, your brainwaves are slower, you're more suggestible and there's access to the subconscious mind. And then I do clearing procedures that are like two minutes long, two to three minutes long. And in doing these, your subconscious mind learns how to clear trauma on its own. So while you sleep over the next 30 to 60 days, it kind of goes through the Rolodex and just starts clearing things out. And then things don't trigger you in the environment. And what most people notice is their energy goes way up because they're not expending all this energy searching the environment anymore. They're able to be present. They're able to be creative. Because if you think there's a, a tiger that's about to eat you, you're not going to sit down and say, let me close my eyes and go within. Let me get centered and grounded. Let me come up with some creative solutions. No, you're going to do something, right? You're going to run. Hopefully you're going to get out of there, right? <laughs> so it yeah. frees up energy for your creative endeavors and you can actually create. Yeah. You know, I've got two other questions around this. One is around mental health. There's a lot of mental health. You know, I, I think we're in a time now where we're recognizing a lot of uh, the, the, you know, the seriousness of mental health issues at, you know, different levels. And then there's some that, you know, um, I don't know, we, we diagnose and we treat with different drugs and what have you now. And, and I wonder how many of these can be treated with trauma release therapy versus some of that, right? Um, yeah. Are, are there certain mental health problems that you th that we see as, you know, being big problems that could maybe use this kind of therapy instead? 
A hundred percent. So for sure, anxiety and depression. Yeah. Those are the Um, ones I was thinking. Yeah. Those are the big ones because depression is a suppression of anger. And if you ask a depressed person, they will never say they're angry about anything. (laughs) Mostly. I mean, in my experience, they're, they're sad or they're depressed or they're apathetic because they don't have access to their anger. Mm. And I was depressed, like clinically depressed for many years. I was on antidepressants. I know what it's like. I was suicidal. I didn't experience a high degree of anxiety, but depression, I know it well. And the big thing for me as I came out of it and as I did this trauma release work was really trusting that these emotions were not going to kill me. Because anytime I felt sadness before, I would like push it down, push it down. I would numb it. I would distract myself. I refused to feel it because I thought it was going to take me back to that suicidal place. I was so afraid of it. And I was a single mom by then. And I'm like, I cannot afford to get depressed. I have, I have to be here for these girls. Their, their dad's an alcoholic. I cannot do this to them. Mm-hmm. So when I... It took a while, honestly, for me to trust that these emotions were not going to kill me. And I got to the point where I'm like, oh, I feel some sadness. And I'd be in Costco. I'm like, okay, whatever. I would just cry in Costco. I'd be like, okay, whatever. I just allow it. It was hilarious. Nobody even noticed. Like, no one, I wasn't wailing, but I was like, the tears are flowing. I didn't make any noise. (laughs) But what happened was like, I don't know, a minute later, I was onto a different emotion. Instead of feeling sad constantly, I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. I didn't expect that. Like, I really thought I would be in it for hours or days. And it was a minute. Yeah. So I don't know. Just one, I'm not going to recommend it to anybody who hasn't cleared the trauma because I don't know what it's going to do. But even before I cleared the trauma, my mom passed away. And I was a single mom and I was going through all the stages of grief. I was very angry. I was really sad. I I mean, and they cycled. And here's what I used to do. I would set a timer for 15 minutes. I'm like, okay, 15 minutes, whatever comes up, it's all coming out. So I would like yell and scream and punch a pillow and cry and sob. My timer would go off. I'm like, okay, blow my nose, fix my face, go back to life. And it worked beautifully because I wasn't negating the emotion I was giving it an outlet and I was doing it in a way that worked for me I put parameters around it so it didn't take me out so just giving it a safe place to express I think it's really helpful that's really good um a lot of people don't believe this but I think in my my well I know in my younger years probably till I was I don't know, maybe even more recently, I was a pretty angry guy. <laughs> you know, I just grew up in an environment that just anger was, I think, actually normal, right? And so uh, everybody was angry. It was it was a very poor environment, lots of violence, all that. It's just the natural reaction of anger was actually socially acceptable. And as I grew older and was in a different environment, you know, now I'm in a middle-class environment and, you know, and, and all that and, and realize people that's not good. Being reactive and angry is not good. And I used to, it took me a long time to understand that that's not a good emotion. And then once I finally understood that it's not, and I need to recognize it and deal with it, 
it's it's weird because now I will be that guy who will uh, I I don't think I have any anger in me anymore, but or reactiveness. Every once in a while, I guess I do, but you know, I'll, I'll just get like I'll start crying for like no reason. It's happened on this show before, you know, and it's usually out of joy, uh, to be honest. But it just it just happens. It's it's different. It's it's interesting, you know, <laughs> how that's, that's really time. interesting. Yeah. yeah, I love that recognition too, and. The one thing that I see people do a lot is make emotions bad or wrong yeah. and they're not. Yeah. It's just the way you use them. Like you use the word reactive. You're not reactive yeah. anymore. And, you know, I coached in a leadership program and we would say your anger is okay. It's just not okay to be angry on somebody else. Right. So, but it gets to have expression. And one of the things I do for my friends, like I have a friend that was going through a divorce and I said, can I support you in any way? She's like, I could use, I want to talk to somebody, but I don't want you to coach me. I said, I would never coach you. I said, I will hold the bucket for you. You can vomit all your emotions in that bucket and I can Hmm. hold it. I can hold it. And I won't say a thing. And for me, that's like one of the most beautiful things that we can offer to people, to our friends is just holding space to allow what is because it just needs a little expression. We don't need it validated. We don't need to be fixed. We're not broken. So around this, I, uh, one of the things I've been dealing with the most lately, uh, is as a parent, if we can talk about parenting a little bit, um, sure. you know, I, I, my, my, I guess my traumas now are, are more around my parenting. I feel bad going back to those times of being anger in anger and reactive uh, in times when I reacted in a way that was not good around my kids, right? Like, you know, my child did something wrong and I got upset and yelled at her or whatever instead of, and made her feel really bad instead of, um, you know, learning from it and working on it together and getting through it. I mean, uh, I'm definitely guilty of this. And, and it's something that eats me up more now that I'm recognizing um, how that is is showing up in her, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, uh, during our holidays, we were we went away and we were at the in-laws and, and, and there was a time when she broke down and she just started yelling like, I can never do anything right. You know, she was so upset with herself. And this is, I mean, she is an incredible, she is going to be a force of nature, right? Like she's a powerful young woman, but it ate me up. I mean, I'm thinking like, I'm, I started feeling that guilt, you know, father's guilt, if there is such a thing, right? <laughs> the, uh, like, I feel like I've done that. I put that in her because I beat her up so bad, you know, not physically, but emotionally, you know, when she was younger, um, because when she was being difficult on me, it wasn't, you know, um, I, I reacted in a in a not so great way that made her really feel like, hey, I can't do anything right. And just this week, we finally had some alone time as I'm taking her to school. And I told her, hey, I want to go back to that moment. And I want you to know that, you know, I, I this is how I feel about it. And I'm really sorry if you feel these ways because of us. And it was, she called it a feel sesh. We had a great feel sesh <laughs> together. <laughs> and it was awesome. But um I, I know that I'm not the only one out there as a parent who feels this way. We've all gone through it, right? And maybe that's why we make better grandparents than we did parents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, I wonder, you know, how do we, I, I don't want my daughter to be in her 40s 
you know, uh, when she's recognizing all these traumas and dealing with them and holding her back in all that time? How do we help expedite those traumas for our kids? You know, like getting through those traumas for our kids, right? So that they can yeah. get through them quickly and, and take on the world and, and kick its ass, right? Yeah, that's beautiful. I think oh, what you. you've what you're doing is so incredible. Think about what it would have meant to you at any time or what it would mean to you if your parent came to you and said, man, I recognize the harm I did to you and mm. I'm really sorry. I can't even imagine in my wildest dreams one of my parents saying that to me. Yeah. And my parents are dead. That never would have happened and it didn't happen. And it would have meant the world had they simply acknowledged it. And you did that. You did that. Thank you. It's beautiful. And it comes from a place of love and humility and self-awareness that I think most of our parents didn't have. They didn't have all the books and the podcasts like this one, right? Right. They didn't have it. So I think just doing that and opening it up, like if there's anything else that's really affecting you, I want you to be able to talk to me about it. I can take it. I know I haven't been perfect and I'm not going to be perfect. And I'm in this with you. I love you. I want you to be happy and I want you to feel safe to tell me anything. Yeah. Because the things that affect our kids, we probably have no recollection of them. They're these little moments yeah. that add up to, I can't do anything right. So another thing is, if you know that's one of her stories, catch her doing things right and tell her, like, wow, I really love the way you showed up in this situation. You were so courageous. And be very specific. Like generalizations are fluff and they're bullshit and the kids read right through them. They're like, whatever, you're just saying that. But if you're specific, like when you did this, I'm really proud of how you showed up. You were being courageous and that is going to serve you in your life. If I had known that at your age, man, I can't imagine where I'd be now. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, because again, I said this before, but what you focus on expands in your yeah. kids too. So when you catch them doing something right and you point it out, they want to do more of it because they're wired to seek your approval. They need it. They want it, your love and approval. And when they're getting it, it's like water and sunlight to a plant. Like yeah. they're going to grow up tall and straight and healthy. Yeah. Yeah, we do have to do a better job of pointing out all the good things, don't we? The same <laughs> with our, our partners, right? Yeah. Same totally. with our partners. You know, you know people that complain about their partners all the time. I'm like, well, do they do anything right? Do they make your life easier or better in any way? Well, yeah. Do you tell them that? No, because I don't want them to get full of themselves. I want them to work harder and be better. I'm like, <laughs> do you hear yourself? <laughs> Does that work for you? When people point out only your flaws, does that work and make you want to be better? Like, we don't think about that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I feel like I got a free trauma therapy session <laughs> already. This is this has been great. Thank you, Karen. I think so many people are going to get a lot of good out of this. Um, we're we're at that point now. Where we go over our famous Wayfinder Four. Um, these are four rapid fire questions we like to ask our guests. You ready for them? 
Sure. All right. So the first one is, what is a hack that you use every day in your life? Like mm. to cheat life with a productivity hack or something like that. Yeah. It's really interesting because I grew up, you know, with low self-worth, low self-esteem and thinking I wasn't lovable. So one of my biggest hacks, like when I feel like I am a piece of crap is I just do this five minute meditation and it is simply this. So I close my eyes and I breathe in. And as I breathe in, I say in my head, I accept. And as I breathe out the love of God, and it could be mm. the love of Jesus, Kuan Yin, Buddha, it doesn't matter, universe, I accept the love of God. And when I did that, I, it took a long time before it really took effect. It really had me realize that what else is there? Like, if God can love me, no matter what I'm doing, then what anybody else thinks doesn't matter. And that love has always been there. I just wasn't open to it. So I wasn't receiving it. I wasn't acting as if I was loved. I was pushing it away. So when I started being open to that, oh, like I could take a breath. I could just be me and know that that was enough. So now I can do that in th three breaths or less. And I'm right back uh -huh. to truth. So that's the thing. It's like we're on this journey to remember the truth of where we came from which is source, God, wholeness, oneness. And we have this ego mind that's super powerful that wants yeah. us to feel separate. Oh, I love that. So what is one, give us a favorite. Could be book, show, movie, uh, whatever, habit, or something, a favorite. Ooh, I have so many. <laughs> one of the most insightful books I've read ever in my entire life is called Outwitting the Devil. Oh, yeah, and it was Napoleon written, Hill. Yeah, Napoleon Hill was written in yeah. 1929, and it's fascinating for yeah. some, somewhere in the 20s. It wasn't released until recently. It's just fascinating, and I, it's so much truth, and that changed my perspective, especially dating. It completely changed my perspective and opened my eyes to how things really are. That's a great book. I remember reading that and it's just, wow. I should read yep. it again, actually. That's one of those that we should be reading over and over, probably. Yeah, it's known and, for Think and Grow Rich, but that book is, I think, way more powerful. It's so good. You can yeah. see why it wasn't released. I mean, there was so much fear around releasing it because he's talking about the educational system and the church yeah. and how people use fear and how we learn to not think. And thinking is a skill that you want to develop for sure. If you want to get yeah. anywhere different than you are, you got to develop it. So I don't know. I love that book. It really opened yeah. my eyes and I gave it to my teenage daughter to read. I'm like, if you get this, you will need very little else in life. Once you get these concepts, you will have, it's like the handbook to life, to success, yeah. to happiness, to love. Good one. Thank you. Young. What is something you would tell your younger self? Oh, yeah. I would tell my younger self, you are so lovable and so worthy. And there is not a single thing you can do to make yourself any more worthy. And there's not a single thing you could do to make yourself any less worthy 
You are just plain worthy. You cannot earn it and you don't need to earn it. Beautiful. What is something that you think keeps people from being happy? Mm. Being unconscious. Uh, thinking that's that. all there is. You know, thinking that this is the best I'm ever going to do. People do that in jobs and relationships and they don't dream. So many people don't even dream past what they have and they they just don't see what else is possible for them. So another thing is asking the wrong questions or not asking any questions. So I'll give you an example. Instead of saying, why did this happen to me? You could ask, what is this happening for? Like, what does this open up for me? What does this make possible that wasn't there before that I wouldn't have seen? Because the quality of the questions you ask determines the quality of your life. So ask better questions. Good one. So, Karen, if people want to know a little bit more about you, um, I know you do coaching, clearly. Um, is it? Can you point us to where we can find out more about you and people want to work with you? Or Absolutely. I am highly Googleable. So my name, Karen Seltz. You can just Google it. You find me in all the places. I'm on Instagram at Karen Seltz. My email is Karen at Karen com. I'm everywhere. It, it would be really difficult to not find me if you Google me. <laughs> okay. I'm not Excellent. saying I get around because I gave that up. <laughs> I love it. All right. There's going to be a lot of people who are going to be disappointed now. Karen. <laughs> okay. So, Karen, thank you so much for being on here. Wow. You have been incredibly vulnerable and authentic and that it's it, it took me aback. <laughs> you came out punching hard and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> all right. So told you. <laughs> you did, yeah. And I know very clearly I won't mess with you, that's for sure. Because <laughs> I am afraid. So um thank you very much for sharing all of your wisdom, you know, being so vulnerable and authentic here. Uh I think there's a lot of people who are gonna really uh when they hear this, they're gonna start asking themselves a lot of tough questions and that's a really good thing. So thank you. Yeah. That's always my hope. And that's the reason I'm willing to share so authentically, so vulnerably, because I believe you can only feel loved to the degree you're willing to tell the truth about yourself. Otherwise, mm. people could only love part of you. If you're not showing them all of who you are, they can't love all of you. So in doing that, I'm teaching people it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. You can share it all. Not everywhere, not on a podcast, but you know, with the people that you love, that care about you. Practice. Thank you so much for having me on. This was incredible. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. We hope you've enjoyed the Wayfinder Show. If you got value from this episode, please take a few seconds to leave us a five-star rating and review. This will allow us to help more people find their way to live more authentic and exciting lives. We'll catch you on the next episode.